Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Quantum computers show great promise because of their ability, at least in principle, to solve certain problems that cannot be solved by the most powerful conventional supercomputers. However, building quantum bits or qubits and connecting them together to create practical quantum computers remains a significant challenge. An important problem is that current quantum computers are very noisy, and this quickly introduces errors into quantum calculations. As a result, researchers are working on ways to do useful calculations on the small, noisy quantum computers that are available today. And you can find some of those scientists and engineers at the UK-based company Phasecraft. And here I am in conversation with its co-founder and chief technology officer. I'm joined down the line from London by Toby Cubitt, who is co-founder of the quantum algorithms company Phasecraft. Toby is also professor of quantum information at University College London. Hi, Toby. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Yeah, great to be here. And thanks a lot for having me on. So, Toby, you co-founded Phasecraft in 2019. What are the aims of the company? Well, we founded Phasecraft because quantum computing was reaching the point where quantum computing hardware was no longer just a toy system, but was actually pushing the boundaries of what could be done on conventional computers. And we founded Phasecraft to try and develop the algorithms needed to make use of that early stage hardware and actually make quantum applications a reality. And that's a huge challenge scientifically, um, but, a, but a fascinating one to be involved in. And, and w- would you say that, that the, the sort of the quantum software side of things has may- maybe been a bit ignored um, in, in favor of all the excitement of developing new qubits and n- new uh, processor technologies? Is, does it deserve more time in the sun, let's say? Um, I think, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with the hardware having, the, the hardware development is extremely important um, and it, it definitely deserves the attention that it's been given. And it's also fascinating physics and material science and engineering going into that. I think the software side, it's a little bit nuanced. Quantum software, if you think about it, like we think about classical computing software and apps and operating systems and platforms, my take and now take in Phasecraft on that is that, that is very irrelevant at this stage. And that side of it, in some sense, has almost been overhyped. We are not in the dot-com 90s boom of quantum computing. We are in the 1950s of quantum computing when the innovation and what needs to be done on, if you like, the software side is really coming up with very clever ideas, not often non-trivial science and mathematical ideas to get algorithms squeezed onto these really early stage, small-scale quantum hardware devices. So I think the hardware development is a really important aspect of the field. It's the algorithms development that needs is the other half of that, the other side of that coin that perhaps hasn't got enough attention. And the distinction between just writing software versus developing completely new, innovative scientific developments on the algorithm side, that nuance is often a bit lost in, in the media. And that's something that perhaps does deserve more attention. You can make you know, quantum software is steadily getting better. Sorry, quantum hardware is steadily improving and getting better and has been doing for the entire 
20 plus years of my career so far. The algorithm side, you can make you know, make the substantial benefits in terms of the efficiency of algorithms just by thinking about them and doing good science and good theoretical work. And sometimes the reductions you get in terms of what hard you would acquire if you improve the algorithms can be much more significant and much faster than the, the progress of hardware, which inevitably takes time. An example is, I mean, in Phasecraft, we developed algorithms for doing the simulating the time dynamics of quantum systems that um, a couple of years ago that knocked a factor of about 10 to the 6. So six orders of magnitude off the best previous algorithms by teams from Google and Microsoft. If you believe in a kind of Moore's law exponential growth of quantum hardware, even if that persists, that's still like 10 years earlier that you'd be able to get useful applications onto the hardware. So the algorithm side and the hardware side have to both be done together. And you can make huge gains on the algorithm side and it doesn't require extremely expensive cryostats and um dill fridges and you know expensive helium and manufacturing chips it just needs a bunch of really smart people thinking deeply about how to tackle this problem and that's what we do at facecraft and i mean there has been an incredible amount of effort going into developing uh the hardware but i think it's safe to say that today's quantum processors are noisy and they quickly lose their quantum coherence Absolutely. which is the thing that you need to do a quantum calculation yep so, so how do you go about developing practical algorithms that can run on imperfect devices? I assume that you, you, you start at the point where you, you think that they're going to be imperfect and you work around that. Absolutely. Yeah. At this stage, the, that is the bane of all quantum applications at the moment on real hardware is the noise and errors. I mean, the gains, the improvements that are made on the hardware are incredible. And yet, nonetheless, they're still nowhere near good enough to be able to pretend that the computers are perfect like we do classically and just ignore the, that there's so many nines of precision that you can basically treat them as error-free. We're very, very far from that stage. So yeah, everything we do in Phasecraft, we are thinking in terms of imperfect, noisy quantum computers that have errors. You can only run a computation for a certain amount of time or certain circuit depth before the errors have accumulated so much you're just getting noise random data out and you've lost all of the quantum information. Um, how do you design around that? Well, one of the things that's critical for these near-term algorithms is to um, make them as efficient as possible because you can think about the noise on current stage quantum computers when you don't have the resources to do error correction and fault tolerance and basically simulate a perfect quantum computer, which is future that will become possible. But our view is that that's still a long way off. That kind of gives you a finite time budget to run an algorithm in before you've lost the, the information. The more you can push that out, and the more you can buy clever techniques that let you squeeze out a bit longer in terms of how long you can run by designing the algorithms so they're not as sensitive or susceptible to the noise or the information you want to extract, maybe the noise is affecting things you don't care about in the output, is one way. And the other way is to make the algorithms, design them to be as efficient as possible and exploit the hardware as as much as possible to get the maximum out of this early stage hardware. Um, and then you can squeeze more into that kind of time you've got. And you know there are very important theorems from the 1990s um, when Peter Shaw developed the whole concept of quantum error correction and then the fault tolerant threshold theorem that shows theoretically, even on noisy quantum computers, you can run arbitrary long quantum computation. However, that requires such huge numbers of qubits and huge numbers of extra gate overhead to implement the fault tolerant schemes that we can't use them. No one has yet demonstrated 
come close to being able to implement them. The closest results are some from literally a couple of years ago by Google, where they started to develop that one logical qubit could be preserved better. Um, so we can't count on that. We know there's a theoretical solution eventually, but you need quantum computers to become massively larger. So at the moment, it's much more of a engineering type problem where you want to think about how is the noise affecting the quantum computers, understand what that noise looks like in detail. And we've done quite a lot of work in Facecroft of actually on actual hardware characterizing what the noise processes look like because the better we, we can understand them the more we can design around them so that they don't affect the outcome but the payoff is the fact that by doing that you know if you shave a factor of 10 to the 6 off the complexity of an algorithm you can squeeze real problems into a much smaller budget and actually get something useful out of these noisy quantum computers Another aspect is that we're often, we're, the circuit model, which is the standard way of thinking about quantum computation in terms of gates, um, discrete gates, is a very nice abstraction, but every layer of abstraction you add, adds overhead. And we add layers and layers of abstraction in classical computer science because it's convenient for humans to reason about because computation is extremely complicated. And this is, programmer time is more valuable really than computing time these days we don't have that luxury in quantum computing you know we have order of 50 to 100 qubits and maybe we can run for depth 20 40 before the whole thing falls over so we're in phasecraft are also thinking even about designing our algorithms at a lower level much closer to the physics and actually exploiting all of the physics and the exquisite control you have over the quantum physics and quantum hardware actually designing the algorithms at that level so we can squeeze more out of it this is why I often say it's like the 1950s of of, compute, of computing, not the 1990s with quantum, because back then in the 1950s, people like, you know, Alan Turing were coming up with really clever ideas of how to squeeze a bit more out of this clunky hardware and actually do incredible things with this primitive hardware. That's the stage we're at with quantum computing. And again, but that's the kind of thing where you can't take the textbook techniques. Uh, if you look at the quantum algorithms textbooks, those algorithms, there's lots of papers assessing what the how big a quantum computer would need and you read those and you think okay we've come back in 10 20 years this field is massively overhyped but that's not the right way to do things you have to think about how do we do this on actual real hardware and do that hard work of not just taking the generic techniques but thinking in detail about how does the hardware work how can we best exploit it it sometimes means that certain algorithms are suited for one type of hardware and physics and not for others and vice versa and and when you say hardware, what what type of, of qubits are, are you using at the moment? Are you, is it superconducting circuits that you're mostly dealing with? Predominantly superconducting circuits because that's the current leading hardware platform. But we've also we're also running on ion traps on cold atom hardware. Um, also in we also think about photonic hardware. So we we're interested in phasecraft at in all of the sort of leading hardware where it's at a scale where you're going beyond what can be be just simulated easily on a laptop classically. So predominantly superconducting circuit qubits at the moment, but we're not tied to that one platform. And we have run on others as well and are doing experiments on other, other hardware platforms as well. And, and Toby, Phasecraft has focused on creating algorithms that calculate material properties. What, why are these applications suitable for early quantum computers? Well, that one, I mean, it's a great question. And the answer kind of goes back to Feynman, who already back in 1982, 1983, pointed out that if it's so difficult to simulate quantum mechanics on a classical computer, then why don't we use quantum mechanics to simulate quantum mechanics? And, you know, Feynman was annoyingly right about a lot of things, and that's one of them. So 
even from the very earliest days, um, it's been realized that quantum computers, one thing they ought to be very good at is simulating quantum mechanics. And that's one thing that is very difficult on a conventional classical computer because the Hilbert space dimension, it blows up exponentially with a number of qubits. And on a classical computer, that literally means you need exponentially number of bits and computational resources. Even to simulate, you know, n electrons requires order two to the n bits of RAM and the the number of operations you have to do scales exponentially as well, whereas it doesn't on quantum computers. So it's long been thought by the whole the field, literally for decades, that simulating quantum many-body systems is one of the prime target applications of quantum computing. It's not the only one, but it's one that is definitely very important, and a huge amount of classical um, HPC high-performance compute time is expended in industry currently on trying to do those computations to compute materials properties to do quantum chemistry simulations and the problem is it's extremely computationally intensive you have to use very clever but very uh, approximations but they cut down the problem a lot and simplify things and often they produce the wrong outcome sometimes they do brilliantly there's problems that are just completely solved but there are others where you know it will predict it's an insulator and in fact it's a conductor when you measure it in the lab that level <laughs> wrong sometimes Oops. And so for certain systems, and we know quite, we, there's a good understanding in the material science and condensed matter community of which systems are hard on convention, with conventional algorithms. And they're ones where there's strongly correlation, strong correlations between the electrons. In quantum information terms, you might say lots of entanglement. Um, neither of those statements is quite precisely accurate, but both of them capture the flavor. And those are systems where, unsurprisingly, classical computers struggle. Quantum computers would be good. Now, why have we focused specifically on materials modeling in phasecraft rather than, say, in quantum chemistry? And why simulation rather than some of the other big potential applications like in optimization or Shor's algorithm factoring? Um, it comes down to which taking a view on which applications we think are the nearest to being within reach of the hardware. So it's not that we founded Phasecraft to just do that. We are actually in within Phasecraft are exploring and have published papers also on optimization, uh, on some of the other applications. But we've our considered opinion from 20 years of, work, of being a theorist working in this field, and myself and Ashley Montanaro, my co my co-founder, one of my other co-founders, is that those are more resource demanding in terms of the the how many qubits, how many gates you need. And the first ones that we're likely to come within reach of hardware are quantum simulation. And those are also some of the most important applications in terms of industrial technology applications. So as the hardware, as the quantum hardware improves, more applications become come within reach of the hardware. So as I said, we believe the first ones are likely to be in the materials modeling space. But as the hardware grows, things like quantum chemistry simulations will become within reach of things that can't yet be, can't be done on conventional computers and optimization applications not outside of the simulation regime, but combinatorial optimization problems start to become feasible. And eventually things like Shor's algorithm and factoring and the, the more number theoretic algorithms will eventually come within reach of the hardware. Those are probably likely to be the ones that are furthest off, in fact. Uh, in terms of what hardware they need in order to be able to run something non-trivial. And material modeling rather than chemistry, it turns out that algorithmically there are certain things in molecular systems where the complexity of the algorithm scale every, scales as number of electrons to the power of four rather than a constant. And that factor means that chemistry is a bit harder to simulate than periodic materials. So there's an algorithmic reason why periodic crystalline materials are a little bit easier potentially than, than molecules. 
And Toby, can you can you give our listeners um, a, a taste of, of some of the specific materials that you've looked at at Phasecraft? Sure. So it's important to emphasize that until up at the moment, the hardware is not yet large enough to have be able to do simulations of real materials beyond what can be done classically. So we're still at the stage of we have the algorithms, but we don't yet quite have the hardware to, to run them, although it's getting close. But the, we have looked then at, at optimizing and developing new materials modeling algorithms on quantum computers and got the the, the resources way, way down. And the ty types of materials that turn out to be very good targets for early stage applications of quantum computing to happen to many of them happen to be in the kind of energy, clean energy related, in fact. So battery materials, um, things like um, metal oxides, where there's they're important targets for technology development of next generation battery technology. They also happen to be ones where classical DFT algorithms don't work very well because they involve strongly correlated electrons and that's exactly where dft struggles so those are ones where technologically extremely important um but and are also ones where the classical conventional computing and high performance computing methods don't give sufficiently good answers uh you can't rely on the accuracy or even qualitatively let alone quantitatively sometimes so that's one area also in photovoltaics similar story so we've looked at, uh, we're working, to, in fact, together with, uh, we have a joint collaboration with Oxford PV, of, uh, who are working on perovskite photovoltaics, of looking at, um, again, strongly correlated electron systems. That's slightly different type of simulation problems, more like dynamical simulation of recombination rates of particle hole pairs of defects and things, things like that. But again, these are um, systems that are technologically and industrially of great importance for energy applications, where it's the materials science properties that really matter and yet it's exact also happens to be the types of materials where classical um, algorithms don't produce good enough results to really be relied upon industrially so those are arrangements so we've looked at things like that we've looked at things uh we like strontium vanadate in phasecraft because it happens to have a nice band structure that means that it can fit on a smaller quantum computer than certain other materials it's not the smallest but that's a metal oxide system that's of interest and happens to need fewer qubits and fewer gates than than other metal oxides for, for reasons to do with the band structure it happens to have and and Toby, when do you think you're going to reach um, the point of quantum advantage, where your algorithms run on a on a quantum processor can actually calculate things that um, a supercomputer can't? Um, you know, the point where um, well, I, I mean, this sounds a bit flippant, but you, you know, you're doing something useful rather than, I suppose, you know, research into how you can do quantum computation. You're actually doing the the computations. Yeah, that is, I was going to say the million dollar question, but it's probably the billion dollar question because that is the quantum industry needs to get to that point where it's doing something, not just demonstrating toy problems, but actually solving real world problems uh, on quantum computers. And, you know, so if I, I can make predictions, I'll probably like TJ Watson, who, you know, back in the whatever the 30s or said that or 50s said that were used for three computers in the world, I'll probably look back on this statement and be horrendously wrong. But we think in Facecraft, it's actually not as far off as current 
in the current hype cycle, I think there's a bit of feeling like, oh, it's actually really difficult and it may be still a long way off. Whereas three, four years ago, everyone was like, it's going to happen tomorrow. In Facecraft, we never believed it was going to happen tomorrow, three or four years ago, but we've steadily made progress on the algorithm side and the hardware is steadily progressing. We think it might not actually might be in the next two to three years where the first applications where you can solve real problems, they may be of scientific interest rather than industrial interest. But that's the likely time frame where we feel like there might be uh, the first Applicate algorithms run on quantum computers that are doing something scientifically interesting and not just a demonstration of a computation that isn't useful for anything. And then industrially relevant applications would be a little bit beyond that. It's contingent very much on two things, on how the hardware progresses and also on that's based on the algorithms we already have and have already know about in, within Phasecraft. Of course, we're not stopping doing anything we also have ideas of how to bring that down even further and ideas of how to better exploit the noisy hardware and even get useful simulation uh simulations out of even very noisy hardware noisier than we can we know how to do just now we have some very good ideas about how to do that so that may come you know the hardware may take longer to develop than we'd hope or it may take uh it may go quicker it's also true that any algorithm breakthrough we make pulls the time frame forward. So, but yeah, it may not be so far off before the first applications are being run on quantum computers. Most likely scientific ones first. It's not going to be switch off your HPC clusters. That will probably never happen anyway. Um, and it's much more likely to be m increasingly more and more useful things will come online rather than that's that, and that's how science generally progresses. It progresses in steps. There's an obstacle for a while, then there's a kind of progress and then it's you're stuck on the next problem for a while but it tends to ratchet up outside the media every so often people pay attention to it and it looks like there's this massive breakthrough that's come out of nowhere but it's never come out of nowhere it's always come out of very hard work by a large teams of scientists working diligently at it for many years and that's what's going on in quantum computing and we'll see the first applications that might not hit the headlines yet but will within the scientific community will be realized that we've passed that threshold where you can now do things that can't be done on conventional computers and that are not just that are actually computing scientifically interesting properties of many body systems for example and it's not for it's it's actually quite close now in terms of the hardware skills and toby some of our listeners um might be uh you know sort of coming to the end of a, a bachelor's degree in physics or maybe they're they're trying to decide if they want to do a phd and maybe be interested in you know getting into into the quantum tech industry, which is, you know, I suppose, very exciting and burgeoning at the moment. At, at Phasecraft, how, how many people do you have on your staff? And what, what are their backgrounds in, in terms of academia? So we currently have a roughly 20 full-time staff. We also have PhD students who are doing their PhDs uh, sponsored by Phasecraft. So they, they sit in the Facecraft offices generally and are working with us in Facecraft, but they're PhD students at um, UCL or Bristol often and occasionally other universities. Um, we also have, at the moment, in fact, a large number of interns who are um, often PhD students or un sometimes undergrad physicists who are with us. So right now, there's a lot more people in the office, um, but it's about 20 full-time staff. Uh, those people have backgrounds in Facecraft. We're split roughly equally between uh, roughly a third have backgrounds in quantum computing, quantum information theory, a third in material science, condensed matter and chemistry, and then a third who are more on the computing side. So in uh, they have a knowledge of quantum computing, but are also but are what they're very 
very good at and love doing is actually programming this stuff up and implementing it and actually getting it working on the hardware. So it's roughly equally split between those three at the moment. Almost all of our staff have PhDs uh, at the moment, although we do have a few hires who are not more on the computing side, uh, who, who are on the implementation side, who, who have a bachelor's or a master's degree and not a PhD. Um, but most, all, uh, the vast majority of our staff uh, either have PhDs or are currently doing pursuing a PhD at the moment. And we're very R&D, we're very research focused at the moment. So that you know, I, I would expect that to steadily, you know, change over time as, as it gets there's more there are the useful applications come online and things become more of commercial rather than just very much focused on R&D purely and recently Facecraft has received um, 13 million pounds in private funding um, how are you going to be spending that money what uh, are, you, are you going to be doing new things or are you going to be sharpening up what you're already doing um, both. I mean, most of that for a, for a quantum algorithms company, almost the vast majority of our funding goes towards people, paying people's salaries. That's the the key. That's the most valuable asset that Facecraft has is our team. Um, for a hardware company, it's rather it's very different because hardware is expensive. But what we need is people to think uh, and code. So so yeah, that that level of funding. Will um, allows us to keep, continue to steadily expand our team. We haven't. We have a relatively small team, but a very good one. That's we've been growing slowly and steadily, rather than hiring a huge number of people all at once, because we have to pace it with the development of the technology. But we we do we we want to expand the team further. Um, we want we will be hiring. We've been always always we're always hiring smart people. In fact, at Facecraft, uh, always. But we would like to expand the team further. We've got more things, ideas that we want to pursue than we actually kind of have the resources to at the moment. And as things get closer to you know being able to implement large uh, computations on quantum computers, that's also more resource intensive in terms of people's time. Um, so we will be scaling up the team. It's in some sense at this stage. It's probably we're not. Yet, it's still a few years off before we hit the point where there are likely to be actual commercially relevant applications. And then things will kind of go through an inflection point where the nature of the whole industry will change as soon as that happens. When that happens, that uh, enters a different stage. It's no longer on promise, but it's actually now delivering real something useful, as you, you put it. Um, but up until that point, uh, we will be scaling the team and growing it, but it will be very much still mostly research um, staff. Um, and in terms of is it sharpening things or is it pursuing new things, it's both. So we are, it, it, you know, it needs one amazing, outstanding idea that could completely change the whole quantum industry. And it's quite possible we want, we're keen on making sure we give our research team the space to also do that kind of blue sky thinking. You can't bet on it, but you can also you want to make sure there's you create an environment where people can have those brilliant ideas in the shower that you know change the face of where the company goes. That would be you know that would be great we can't we're not betting the future of the company on that but you want to make the space for that to happen um but at the same time we also have a lot of projects ongoing where we are continuing to develop things we've done many of them are, are published they're on preprints and in, in scientific publications and and really pushing these things further and we have a lot of ideas of how we can really make the algorithms we developed more efficient still we even know how to do that we just need to do it so it's a bit of both. It's sharpening things we've already done, but it's also um, exploring new ideas that are more blue sky and more radical that might fail. But some of them, 20 of them will fail and the 21st will 
turn out to be a significant new direction that no one thought of. And that's happened a couple of times in Facecraft already, not revolutionizing the field, but things that we didn't have on the radar and came out, someone got inspired, and then there's a new direction that opened up that we're pursuing. Well, that's great. I mean, it's such an exciting time um, in physics. Um, yes. And, you know, it's great, like, that companies like Phasecraft are offering opportunities to early career physicists to, you know, sort of explore the um, the commercial side of, of quantum technology, which, you know, is something that, uh, you know, me, I, I I was an undergraduate in the, in the 80s, and none of this existed. You know, it was sort of shut up and calculate, and nobody, yeah. n- n- nobody really took the the, the, those sort of uh, esoteric sides of quantum mechanics that seriously. And now it turns out that you can, you can solve all these problems. And um, put it to so use. I'm, yeah. Exactly. I, I'm yeah. always amazed no, by it's, that. Yeah, it's hugely exciting. And I like, as you said in your intro, I keep, I, I'm still a professor at UCL. I still have an academic group there. And I find both sides equally intellectually interesting. The applied, it's really exciting to be able to take stuff I've theorized about for 20 years, but without any real world physics to do it with. Now we're at the point where I can take that theory and actually now make it real. And that's incredibly challenging as well, scientifically to, you know, frequently you have a great theory idea and instead of just writing a paper now, I run it on the hardware and it doesn't work at all. (laughs) And it turns out the real universe says, no, that's not a good idea. But that's incredibly useful and fascinating problem to tackle as well. And so the applied side of the research of actually applying this physics to the technology is, is, I find, just as fascinating and interesting as the more blue sky academic i enjoy both and both are really important well that's great toby thanks so much for for coming on the podcast and um all the best um from physics world to you and your colleagues at at phasecraft we're looking forward to um to hearing more from the company no thanks thanks very much hamish and yeah if anyone who's listening who's interested in potentially looking at careers or insight into quantum computing do get in touch with us at facecraft as i said we have intern programs where we take a lot of students from often phd students but sometimes undergraduate students and also um we sponsor we, we fund phd students at facecraft and hiring so we're always keen to talk to smart people who want to who are excited about using quantum mechanics to do something useful in terms of real world applications so cvs to toby then that's right (laughs) cvs to careers at facecraft so that someone actually reads the email because my inbox is just flooded but luckily we have other people at facecraft who keep on top of that (laughs) well that's great thanks toby thanks very much there is no doubt that ionizing radiation is harmful to living organisms But is exposure at low doses ever safe? The linear no-threshold model says no, assuming a linear relationship between dose and harm right down to zero. This model has been around for nearly 80 years, and it informs radiation policy around the world. However, it's not without its critics. In his latest Critical Point column, the philosopher Robert Kreese looks at the history of the model and argues that its validity should be scrutinized. You can find that column on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, How Sound is the Model Used to Establish Safe Radiation Levels?
Also new on the website is a feature article that explores how physics and physics-related technologies are being used to make brain-computer interfaces safer, more durable, and widely available. You can find that article under the headline, Plug Me In, The Physics of Brain-Computer Interfaces, which is by the physicist and author Sidney Perkowitz. And congratulations to Sydney, who has just won the 2023 Andrew Gamant Award from the American Institute of Physics. The prize is given for making significant contributions to the cultural, artistic, or humanistic dimension of physics. And many of Sydney's contributions have graced the pages of Physics World. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks to two physicists who are working to overcome inequalities in society. They look at how international policymaking can be strengthened by the contribution of more people with backgrounds in fundamental science, and how patterns in consumer energy usage can be used to reveal local inequalities. That episode is called Physics for Fairness, Tackling Global Sustainability Challenges Through Science, and it can be found on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.